Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. and delight to be here with Rabbi Mike Moskowitz, who is the scholar in residence for trans and queer Jewish studies at Congregation Beit Simchat Torah in New York City, the world's largest LGBTQ synagogue. He's a deeply traditional and radically progressive advocate for trans rights and a vocal ally for LGBTQ inclusivity. Rabbi Moskowitz received three ultra-Orthodox ordinations while learning in the Mir in Jerusalem in the Beit Midrash Gavoa in Lakewood, New Jersey. He is a David Hartman Center Fellow and the author of Textual Activism. Check it out. His work on behalf of trans rights began while he served as the rabbi of the Old Broadway Synagogue in Harlem and the H. New York Rabbi at Columbia University. Thanks for taking time to talk. Thank you for having me. So on this topic of toxic masculinity, uh, which we know to be such a, a problem and thank, thank God more recently becoming more and more clear, even in the news today. So let me start here. Do you think gender itself is real? It's a great question. Certainly for the transgender community, it's real. If we take a posture of complete egalitarianism to the extent that men and women are exactly the same, then there's no space to transition. Um, God has gendered attributes within our tradition. God doesn't have a body. We're creating the image of God and God doesn't have an image. We have a tradition of gender-based spiritual practice in that a man's arm and a woman's arm aren't different that like one should require leather boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really interesting to think about where gender lies, and I think that that's really elusive. I think it's almost easier to name places that are a social construction of gender uh, and systems of gender uh, inequality that need to be dismantled, 70 cents on the dollar, like there's all sorts of things that we can say like, well, that's not real. Um, but I think on some level, perhaps, perhaps uh, on a soul level, gender is very real. Um, what I think is also interesting to point out is that we have, um, I think unique blends where it's not just a binary, but there's uh, a growing space of gender nonconforming, gender queer, gender fluid. Um, and so uh, those aren't the only two options of like male and female. So I think things can be gendered in really unique blends. Mm-hmm. What's some of the language for the space on the spectrum? Sure. Uh, we say non-binary and one or non-gender conforming, but what, is there a language to kind of fill that space? Yeah, and I think that, that the language itself is fluid right now, yeah. right? So an umbrella term uh, is one like queer, which means very broad, uh, means a lot of different things, and now it's almost a verb, the queering of. So gender queer is, I think, a way of saying there's a deviation from uh, the binary, uh, gender fluid, gender nonconforming, uh, GNC, I think, is the way it's often written. Um, but it's also very personal. For some folks, they are skewed towards being more masculine, more feminine. Uh, for some, there's a consistency of feeling an awareness of both, and that's often where you find the plural pronouns of they, them. Uh, for some, it really depends on the moment. There are times where a person feels more masculine, more feminine. Uh, I was at a conference uh, in Toronto, and I saw there was a person who had a necklace that the, there were kind of these squares with a hole, and it 
one said he him, one said she her, one said the them, they them, and they would like flip it as they felt. So that's kind of an extreme um, um, sensitivity to gender in the moment. Um, and for some, it's just, I, I don't feel masculine or feminine. Um, and gender identity and sexual orientation are also very different. Uh, who a person wants uh, to sleep with is different than who a person is when they go to sleep. So one's an identity, one is uh, an orientation or an attraction. Someone who's asexual is not free from gender. Mm -hmm. So there are two different lanes, uh, and the Hebrew Bible speaks to uh, two different kind of topics of wearing misgender clothing or mm -hmm. uh, being with uh, somebody of the same gender, um, which themselves have kind of a different set of commentaries and traditions on, on how to address them. And so this, it's a clear recognition that gender identity and sexual orientation are different. And on some level, in some ways, they do affect each other. Feminism, for sure, and different waves of feminism have absolutely impacted uh, the way in which we see gender identity mm -hmm. and uh, gender played out in society. Um, and... Uh, it's multiple causality, right? There's a lot of things that, that, that contribute and it's really hard to ever isolate all of the variables. And we need to have the humility that like we actually have no idea. Like yeah. it's really hard. And especially at the intersection um, of the trans experience in Jewish thought and Jewish law, um, is there a moment along a person's personal transition from potentially a uh, name change, uh, hormones, haircut, wardrobe, uh, maybe even surgery, where we can say like, okay, at this point, Jewish law now validates and affirms the gender identity uh, in the moment? Is it when a person is done transitioning? Is like, it, and it's not clear that there's, we have access to that information. And there's a real need that's urgent to answer the questions. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the work at that intersection is about lowering what's at stake within Jewish law um, to be supportive and inclusive without having to answer that meta question about where gender lies. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So um, as you described, and that's how I understand it as well, that gender identity and sexual orientation are different lanes. Mm -hmm. How phenomenal, phenomenologically do those two actually intersect? Me, um, yeah, and I, based on what you how you've counseled and talked with folks, yeah, yeah, um, they they almost run independently, right? There are people who, um, when they transition, um, are still attracted to the same people because it's mm -hmm. completely irrelevant um, one to the other. One of the other things that we observe is that, especially with young kids, there's a great acute awareness of gender identity mm -hmm. with a complete oblivion mm -hmm. of sexual orientation, right? Mm -hmm. A five year old can say, "No, I'm not a girl. I'm a boy. I'm not a boy. I'm a girl." Well, who do you like? like to play with, like it's not, it's on the radar in terms of sexual orientation, right? So that's something that I think comes from most people much later. And mm -hmm. so it also speaks to, um, right, an awareness of something that's independent of the other. There are other like observations we can make uh, that are helpful data points. Uh, kind of the first wave of modern, um, the modern trans experience was predominantly male to female, almost three to one. We're now seeing the reverse that is predominantly uh, female to male, mm -hmm. uh, also mm -hmm. about three to one. Um, and that's just in the binary, the, the space of gender nonconforming is expanding. Um, and so like we can offer suggestions or, you know, throw out ideas of why not, but at the end of the day, like the question is better than the answer. Yeah, yeah, okay, very interesting. So um, what is it that we mean by the term masculinity? It's, it's, it's great, right. So what does it mean to be a man, right? What does it mean to like, oh, that's too feminine, right? right. Too, um, so I see these uh, as attributes that we all have and um, sometimes there's a more dominant expression of, it, it might be easier to, to use a parallel of like the commandments in that every commandment has something that makes it distinct and unique, but it also is an element in all of the other ones. For example, there's an independent mitzvah to honor the Sabbath, right? But every single mitzvah has an aspect of honor in it. 
and it's just like kind of manifested or highlighted, accentuated, right? Uh, the red heifer, right, is, is emblematic of uh, like a chok, something that we can't really understand. But every single commandment has aspects of it that we can't understand. Mm -hmm. So when we think about masculinity, it's often a specific attribute, right, which is just in this moment being um, manifested or highlighted. Um, it doesn't mean good or bad, right? In other words, toxic masculinity is when masculinity is, right? So... Um, What's been interesting in terms of the work within our tradition uh, is an awareness that um, sometimes um, these specific attributes um, are both um, seen as being uh, positively harnessed and also misappropriated. So we don't have great language within um, our English culture, American culture right now for like positive masculinity or, uh, but within our tradition, we do have a great idea of kind of a graceful masculinity, which kind of speaks to, um, you know, the, the role that a man can have. And again, we talk about men, it doesn't mean men, it's people, it's just, but the attribute of masculinity being used and harnessed for something constructive and positive. Um, and it's often used interchangeably uh, in terms of uh, gender. So for example, uh, one of the earlier earliest mystical works, Sefer Yitzirah, says that the letter Taf, which is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, governs over Chain, which is like grace. And the commentators point out that when you put that letter in the middle of it, it forms the word Chatan, which is groom, right? Which is like kind of this very binary masculine role in relationship to uh, another. Um, and so like, what does that mean to like have that awkwardness of, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm marrying somebody who like, I'm not good enough for, or oh, I just want to be worthy, or like, uh, I just want to advance the cause of doing something, you know, positive and also recognizing uh, the role of taking whatever resources we have in the moment and networking them uh, to those who need it the most. So, you know, I wonder if you see these studies all the time, I don't know if they're studies or just articles, these headlines that say like actually straight women really want sort of hyper-masculine straight men. Right. And the opposite, you, those men also want, you know, women who are stereotypically, fe you know, feminine in these right. ways. Like, are those like, okay, let people be with their preferences or is that like a problem to continue to harness such um, stereotypical, you know, you know gender yeah. identities? Yeah, I, I think it is, uh, it is problematic um, because people mm -hmm. should be who they are, right? And love is love and people are attracted to the things that they're attracted and yeah. to the people they're attracted. Um, I think it's really easy uh, to hate people and things that you've never met or experienced. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's just, I think, a lot of phobia um, around um, things that are perceived as different and you're not yeah. accustomed to. Um, masculinity is wonderful. Femininity is wonderful. Uh, if it's constructive, then there's no wrong way to do it, right? If it's destructive, if it's hurtful, then uh, all of those ways are wrong. Uh, no one person has universal appeal, right? And so there's no one way to be a man. There's no one way to be a woman. Uh, there's no one way to be genderqueer. There's no one way to be straight or gay, right? Um, there is, I think, both in the, ultra, in the uh, let's say, the yeshiva world where there are constantly um, kind of competitions um, within society to become more strict and more, right, to take on more stringencies, um, and there's, there's a role of that, but then for people who have kind of just been doing it the way that they've always been doing it, mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. um, they kind of get left behind and they're not from enough, they're not orthodox enough. And I think you see something very similar in really progressive spaces, like is it, you know, this purity test of like, if you can't do it 100%, mm -hmm. right? And the, and the reality is that there's a lot of good ways of advancing the cause in the right mm -hmm. direction. And people do that at different paces. And some people do that with different concentrations and one's own masculinity uh, or femininity or lack of awareness of that uh, is also just it's so person specific. Yeah. So I think it's better. The, the question is, I think, like, are there healthy ways of being, right? You know, uh, with one's own body. For most people who are not 
trans or genderqueer, the lack of awareness of gender identity is what makes it difficult to understand that experience and what mm-hmm. allows them to recognize their own identity of, as being cisgender. Meaning, for most folks, when we're, uh, when we're kids, we're told which bathroom to use. Yeah. And then, like, we don't think about it again. Yeah. And so, for folks who have an expanded awareness of gender, often there'll be some sort of tension between the way in which they see themselves and the world sees themselves. Mm-hmm. And so, part of that transition <laughs> is in allowing uh, the world to see them the way in which they do. Yeah. So what is what does toxic masculinity look like, and what can we be doing, especially yeah. as um, white cisgender males, to yeah. undermine that? Yeah, it's always uh, I think in these conversations easier to identify like what's wrong yeah. than it is how to do this yeah. right. So there are people who are like let's say like a mensch, right? A person's like doing this well, they're well received. One of the things that's interesting about the language is uh, the word of finding grace, which really shows that it's not about the intentions, about the impact. Mm-hmm. Like are people being received? so? I would say like you know when men uh, take up too much space, not just physically, but in conversations, um, speaking over, interrupting, you know, others, um, when there's a kind of, um, almost like a steamrolling of this kind of intensity of, of putting one's presence in there as a way of intimidating, those are things that are often concerned, um, perceived as uh, toxic. Um, also elevating oneself through, um, you know, the uh, minimize, minimizing or marginalizing of others, uh, as opposed to trying to elevate other people and really kind of be in this place of ideas, uh, as opposed to a place, uh, place of privilege. One of the things that's fascinating to hear from uh, folks who have transitioned uh, female to male is the way in which society now listens to them because mm-hmm. they're male presenting, mm-hmm. right? And so as two guys, um, you know, when we talk, people listen, right? If, if whether we want to be in opposition or not, right? There's a certain respect that's given mm-hmm. um, that like we're shocked if somebody's interested. You can't interrupt me. Like, but I think for, uh, for folks who don't have that kind of, uh, that are on the other side of that societal dysfunction, um, right? It's really not pleasant. So I would say like the most important thing to do um, is to listen, right? To be able uh, to be more sensitive to how is, how are my actions affecting those around me? Um, and other <coughs> things to do, you know, in terms of panels and yeah. never, you know, making sure that, that we take our privilege, uh, that people want to hear what we have to say, and making sure that that, that first person narrative and voice uh, is amplified and given, um, you know, more than, than the space of the people who are occupying it unnecessarily. Great. So, since your project Textual Activism, I know, and you started to mention it, your next project being Graceful Masculinity. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of came upon it uh, in Parshas Noah. So, the Hebrew word uh, for grace is chain, and it's interesting that those are the same two letters as Noah, right? Nun uh, ches, except that it goes in the wrong direction. And there's this really interesting arc, no pun intended, uh, with Noah, uh, that he goes from being a really righteous person in his generation, and then you see through the, the verses, uh, that he had this privilege and entitlement and plan for him and all the things, and he's just selfish with it. He's just, um, you know, his his arc was a, was a failed allyship, right? Because he really just cared about himself and his family, and he let the rest of the world perish. Um, and then when he gets out of the arc, he continues in this kind of self-focused way. Um, and it's also interesting that that very first verse in, in that part of Noah has 13 words in it, which... Uh, the commentators point out, speak to the 13 years of a man becoming a man. And this is actually like a model of, you know, this is how it could go. But alternatively, right, and the numerical value of the word Noah is 58, uh, in part because he actually overlaps with Abraham for 58 years. And we don't hear from him. Um, and so we know those those two word letters um, in the tradition within Judaism of numerology uh, are 8 and 50, which speak to something a little bit supernatural, right? It's circumcision, it's Hanukkah, it's that miraculous piece. Uh, and so to the 7 times 7 that the Torah was given, that people who aren't willing to kind of invest and go against the nature will invariably continue to debase uh, that human relationship. And so it requires like pause and thought, thoughtfulness 
uh, introspection and then some stretching because it is awkward. It's hard. The person says like, hey, I see what's happening. Like I recognize that the way in which we used to speak about things, uh, you know, as children is like no longer appropriate. The world has become more sensitive. Like I want to get better at this, uh, but I need some feedback. Yeah. And as you know, like it's always hard to ask those who are like marginalized and oppressed to like dig deeper to help us. Um, but that's really what's necessary. And so I started writing like weekly essays uh, on the Parsha that uh, speak to elements of masculinity within that week's Torah portion um, with some discussion questions. Mm -hmm. the, the idea being that um, it's rare that, that guys can have this conversation, part because of the way in which that's perceived as not being masculine. Mm -hmm. When a guy's like, hey, am I like, being sensitive enough? Like, that doesn't go with the dominant culture of what it means to be uh, a man. Uh, and that's problematic. And so um, having opportunities, perhaps at a Shabbos table, to say, like, this is a really interesting insight um, that tradition teaches us about the way in which people are interacting in the Parsha, like what does that look like to get that right in our society, in our mm -hmm. lives? And I think the more we talk about it, the more we can get awareness and also the more we can get feedback from people who perhaps can recognize that we're trying really hard, but like we're not seeing it clearly. Mm -hmm. so, I, I, so I think a last question. Um, what, um, what's some Torah that guides you in this work? I mean, it's hard to be from... Yeah. Believe in a Kodesh Baruch Hu's influence and presence, believe in the divinity of Torah, you know, commit to halacha and do progressive work in the world, in particular on LGBTQ issues, which um, are, are viewed as, uh, you know, out of bounds. So I wonder, like, what's some Torah that either guides your perseverance or guides just the work you do on kind of like a daily meta level? Yeah, um, Baruch Hashem, like, it's a big Torah and there's a lot that speaks yeah, to me. Yeah. Uh, but I think the, the one that uh, for me resonates uh, on the most constant basis is uh, the famous Gemara, um, for those doing Dafyami, it's not that long ago, it was really on, mm -hmm. uh, in Brachos, that now that we, um, that we don't, the guy doesn't have a house anymore, right? Um, I see the divine revelation as God's coming out speech, and I feel like we've now pushed God back into the closet. Mm. Um, and so now God doesn't have an address anymore. Right? God is hidden. Um, and so the Talmud says, well, now that we can't like, go visit God at God's house, like, where do we find God? And the Talmud answers in the four cubits of Jewish law, in the Arba Amas of Halacha. Uh, so the simple interpretation is, right, so how do you relate to God? Well, we have a code of Jewish law. Like, do these things throughout the day, make blessings, all the things, and you'll be able to find God in that ritual space. And that's true. But the word hiluch, uh, halacha comes from that language of progression, of walking, of going forward. And so as somebody who believes that the Torah was given on Mount Sinai, it's eternal, it's infinite, it's immutable. So it's less about construction and invention, more about uncovering and discovering. So I believe that God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai about trans issues. And so that place of that Arbamas of Allah is of like, what's next? How do we recognize somebody of trans experience, um, their conversion into Judaism? Like, what does that look like? If there's a woman of trans experience who didn't have bottom surgery and wasn't circumcised, right? Is that body part specific or is that gender specific, mm -hmm. right? So it's in those Arba Amas of Halacha, like these questions that are coming up now, which are new for us, that's where I feel we can like find and meet God. Mm -hmm. And I think if you can sense that you're walking with God, you're in really good company. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. So, so I wonder, just as a follow-up, yeah. what do you do with like the Gemara and like Rebbe Akiva and Moshe Rabbeinu being so nervous? Yeah. Like Rebbe Akiva knew Halacha that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know. Yeah. So how do you understand sort of like... Sure like uh, an evolving kind of revelation as compared to kind of like uh, yeah. a Sinai, you know, yeah. maximalist approach. Sure. So, right, it's a great Gemara in, 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 in uh, Menachos, and it's, it's uh, I think it's a really deep, deep, deep message. Uh, for me, I think uh, the Torah is alive, um, and it needs to speak in present tense. So the question is less about, um, you know, 
what was written, but rather if we could ask like Das Torah, like the Torah itself could have a voice right now, what would it say is the will of the, of the divine? And that is going to look different in every generation, right? So the Torah is equally applicable, but the way in which we process, right? We're not meant to answer questions, we're meant to answer people. And the people asking the question today are different, right? When people, when the world was less safe and people were suffering in silence, um, so the question about um, LGBT inclusivity within the Orthodox world was a different question because they're different competing interests, mm -hmm. right? We, we don't have ambiguity about a verse on fasting on, on Yom Kippur. Um, and then it's, it's prohibited until it becomes a mitzvah, right? Um, and so too, you know, even the, the Mishnah and the Talmud itself, it's predicated on a biblical prohibition, right? The Gemara Gittin said says that the oral law you can't write down, the written you can't say orally. And then Rabbi Yehuda Anasi said, like, well, if we don't write it down, it's going to get lost. We can't be more concerned with wisdom getting lost than being concerned about people getting lost. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a new question. We need to have, you know, we need to end the horrific rabbinic practice of asking you know, queer folks to marry straight, like mm -hmm. everybody loses, mm -hmm. it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. um, and so like, that was a different question, right? And so we need to have better answers. And so I think the idea that Rabbi Akiva had a Torah and Meshur had a Torah, it's the same Torah, but like they're speaking to a different set of people. And so like, yeah, there's, there's oh, some space yeah. there. Okay, wishing you a lot to continue to brach on his love.